You ever been in a situation where you're like, uh, you're like, I think I got this. Yeah, I think I know what I'm doing here. Okay, feeling good about yourself. I've had a bunch of like knee surgeries because apparently I'm a delicate flower. And uh, about 10 years ago, after I'd already had two ACL reconstructions on my right knee, I thought, hey, my left knee's feeling left out. Why don't I mess that up? So I'm playing basketball with some friends and just feel like this weird kind of pain in my knee. It wasn't as bad as the other. When I went to my ACL, I was like, oh, this can't be bad, but it just was swollen, it just wouldn't go away, it was just annoying, so I had to go see an orthopedist, and they sent me for an MRI, which is the most terrifying thing you can possibly do. I'm glad it's only been my knee. I can't imagine if I had to go in all the way, because like, you're going to hear a little bit of a noise, and they don't warn you that it's like, yeah, it's going to be, you're like, is everything okay? Like, what's going on? So I get my MRI, and they give it to me on a CD, and I'm curious. So I go home, and I, and I pull it up on the computer, and uh, I was like, oh, man, I'm sitting my show my wife, and they're like, oh, this looks bad. I was like, this thing here, I was like, that's, I think that's my, my ACL, and that, see, it looks fine. Like, I think I'm okay, but it's like this other thing over here, like, maybe that, that, that doesn't look good. So I have to go see the doctor the next week, and I bring this CD with me, and he pulls it up, and we look at it, and he's like, so did you take a look at this? I was like, yeah, yeah. And inside, I'm like, I don't want to brag doctor, but uh, I think it took care of the diagnosis part. If you just want to kind of move ahead with this, well, I'll be good. You know, he's like, you know, I kind of know what I'm doing here. And he's like, oh, you know, then you, you saw, then, uh, then this part over here, uh, this is your ACL, which is torn, which is, by the way, not what I thought was my ACL and also didn't realize it was torn. And he's like, and over here, you know, this is your PCL. You're, these are okay. And it's like, okay, that's also not what I thought those were. And I thought those were messed up. And so, you know, I don't want to look like a total idiot. So like, oh, yeah, 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 that make, yeah that makes, that's what I saw too. That makes sense. Yeah, I was not remotely close. Like, I was not remotely close. Like, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of experience really kind of led me down the wrong path. Like, I thought I knew what I was talking about because I had been around this before. It wasn't my first time. I've been around it, so I thought I knew what it was like. But I, I was probably a little overconfident. And I really didn't know what I was talking about as well as I thought. And I think church can be like that sometimes for us. If you've gone to church for any length of time, then I think church can be like this. If you're new to church, hey, I just want to say, welcome. I'm glad you're here. You could be anywhere and you're here with us and we are glad that you're here. But if you come to church for any length of time, I think we have a a conception of what church is in our minds and what it's supposed to be. And we've kind of unintentionally shaped that around our wants and needs and desires. It's kind of shaped around the way we want to experience things. So what is church really? Well, we're starting a new series called Ecclesia, the Ancient Future Church. And we're not expecting you to know what Ecclesia is. That's okay, because we're going to talk about that's the Greek word for church that's used in the New Testament. And really, Ecclesia just means gathering, Sometimes I think that we think there's these kind of like really deeply spiritual significant words, and sometimes there are, but ecclesia is not really a a special word. It's a word that the culture used for gathering, and so that the church kind of took that and referred it to themselves as their gatherings. So that's what ecclesia means. It really means a, a gathering. It's really a community. And we're calling it the ancient future church because we see in the Bible a picture of what the early church looked like, and we see a 
a, a picture in the Bible of what the perfect church looks like when Jesus comes back, when his kingdom's established. So we have a picture of the early church and the perfect church, and, and we fit in the middle of that timeline somewhere. So what is church supposed to be? Well, like we said, church is, in the Bible, ecclesia is a gathering. It's really a, a community. And it's a community that's marked by two things. It's a community that's marked by being set apart, and it's a community that's marked by being sent. And we see those two things really throughout the Bible that apply to the people of God. They're a community that's set apart. I mean, that's really what one of the things the circumcision meant in the Old Testament. And if you're not familiar with what that is, ask your parents. But that they were set apart. They were meant to be different, right? And they were also sent. There was purpose. There was mission. And so we're going to look at the idea of what is a community that's set apart. And Charles is going to talk more next week about a community that is sent. So what's it mean to be a set-apart community? Well, it really means to be a different kind of community, a different kind of community. And we're going to look at some of the ways that that kind of community is talked about in the book of Colossians this morning, chapter 1. If you brought a Bible with you, you can open to Colossians chapter 1 that's in the New Testament. If you got a Bible on your phone, that's okay, still counts. You want to pull that up? And I'm going to give you some context about what this, uh, this is about before we dive into it. So the book of Colossians is a letter written to the church at Colossae. It's a city that used to be a, a very important, significant city in this part of the world that had sort of diminished importance in the Greco-Roman period. Uh, and this, this group of people, this gathering, this church, is dealing with false teaching. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes this letter to challenge them or remind them of the greatness of God. Paul's concerned about the gospel, the message of Jesus being watered down by co-opting and adding in other religious elements and, and practices, right? So I want to stress that, because I think that's why this is, this is germane for us to talk about today. The church hadn't rejected Jesus entirely. They just were, different parts were kind of adding other things into Jesus. It's an idea called syncretism, and if you forget that and never remember it again, that is totally okay. It's just saying, sure, Jesus, thumbs up to Jesus, but also, you know, other stuff. And in this case, it's an early kind of form of Gnosticism, which again, you don't have, ever have to remember that again. And so Paul pushes back against this false teaching, not by picking apart those arguments, but by showing how Jesus is the greatest truth that there is. He emphasizes the importance of Jesus because he wants the Colossians to know and experience the richness of Jesus and a relationship with him. Because what Paul knows and what he outlines here is that Jesus isn't simply a good thing. Jesus is everything. Jesus isn't a part of the solution. Jesus is the, the, the whole answer. Jesus is the only thing that is more than enough for us. Essentially, Paul is pointing out here that the church is built on, oriented around, empowered by, and pointed toward Jesus. Church being a different kind of community can happen because really church is a Jesus community. And so we're going to look at this in Colossians. And why, if you're wondering why, because he's writing to a church. Paul's writing to a church, and so the things that he celebrates and emphasizes and draws out and highlights, those are things that we can look at and understand. What are good things about church? What is the church called to be? So we're going to read Colossians 1 to 14 right now. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. 
the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul outlines some things about this community. He celebrates some things. He calls them to do some things, and he points out some things they're doing well. And we're going to unpack some of those this morning. And the first thing we're going to look at is this is a a different kind of community, is a community that believes differently, right? We're called to be a different kind of community. And what that looks like is a community that believes differently. Because think about the way Paul structured all of this stuff. Paul's pointing out things about them. He's highlighting things about them. First, he calls them the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. He's pointing out their belief in Jesus, their understanding of who he is and and how that's a foundational element for them. He goes on to talk about, we've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ. Again, their belief that's rooted in Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And he talks about how they've already heard the true message of the gospel, right? He's pointing out, hey, you've heard the message of Jesus. You've heard this good news. And he later on, he says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Paul's highlighting their belief in something different. It's not belief in themselves. It's not belief in an institution. It's belief in Jesus because everything starts there. That's the whole ball game. Do we know Jesus? Do we know Jesus? Paul really puts a fine point on that in, in verse 9 continually asking God to fill them with the knowledge of his will. Because what he's saying there, the feel of that verse, of of the idea of being filled with knowledge of God's will, is really that that would saturate our whole being, that it would saturate our mind and what we think about, that it would saturate our heart and what we care about, that it would saturate our lives and the way we live. Paul is pointing out that belief is the foundational piece to this. We know Jesus, understand who he is and what he's done for us, right? Because what's belief in these verses? It's faith in Christ Jesus, in the message of the gospel, that God has moved towards broken and rebellious people in the midst of their running away from him to rescue them and drag them back to himself through his son. It's that message, God redeeming and restoring a lost and wandering people to himself, It's God saying to people, I love you. I know everything about you and I love you anyway. And though you have broken our relationship by rejecting me, by rebelling from me, but functionally by sin as us saying to God, I don't need you to find good or joy or meaning or purpose in my life. God moved towards us anyway through Jesus. He wants us to know him. And that's why I love this little nugget at the end. It says, 
the knowledge of, of his will through all the wisdom and understanding what? That the spirit gives. What God is saying is, I'm giving you part of myself that you can understand me. If we could have figured out life on our own, we, we would have done it. The Holy Spirit is God saying, I know you can. I will do this for you. Let me work in you. The Spirit is God helping us to understand him, meeting us where we are. Our faith in Jesus is deepened and developed by the work of the Spirit in our lives. So we see that belief is not just a thing we achieve, but it's a thing that God works in us to accomplish through his Spirit. Man, I love that picture. Let me give you an example. I was watching a documentary this week about a guy named Theodore. He was on The Price is Right. He was a huge Price is Right fan. Huge, like, that's not even a strong enough word. Crazy fan. He started memorizing the shows and memorizing, creating price lists and figuring out the price. He built his own software so he could track everything. Got to the point where he knew, because they repeated prizes, exactly what stuff cost. I mean, it's crazy. He'd get on the show and, and yell stuff out. He's just a nice guy. That he just wanted other people to win. He, he actually said, I, just, I didn't need him to give me anything. I just enjoyed when they won stuff. He knew it cold, like dead on, not the closest, cold. Finally gets on the show, nails stuff exactly. And the documentary culminates when a guy uh, was up on Showcase Showdown and uh, he was sitting next to the guy's wife and he was kind of telling her prices and he knew the exact price of the showcase showdown the exact price to the dollar and if you don't watch prices right you are not excited enough about that because <laughs> it's unreal i mean they'll give you an extra price if you're within what a thousand dollars he knew it exactly it was unbelievable that's a picture of the gospel for us theodore did all the work theodore knew the answers other people benefited. All they had to do was trust that he knew what he was talking about, listen to his answers, and give them as their own. That's what the gospel is for us. Jesus doing all the work, giving us the answers. We just got to hear them and pass it off as our own. We need to believe the truth about ourselves that we need a savior, that we need to be rescued, and we need to believe the truth about Jesus, that he has come to set us free. That is the central idea. That is the foundation of church. We are a Jesus community built on Jesus. So the second thing that we see here is we're called to be a community that loves differently. We're a community that believes differently. We're a community that loves differently. We see love mentioned here in these verses. Paul says, we've heard of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring up from the hope stored up for you in heaven. And later on, he says, we heard from Epaphras, who also told us of your love in the Spirit, that love is something they're doing that stands out culturally. It stands out. This kind of concern for others, this cross-class concern for others was a new thing, and it stood out. It was significant here. But where does that come from? And I love that he kind of gives us a, a teaser in, in verse five when he says that the spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, that we can love differently because of how we've been loved. He really lays it out explicitly in verses 13 and 14 when he says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We can love differently because we have been loved differently. 
that God loves his son. And when we trust in Jesus, that that love is transferred to us. And we're rescued out of the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of lights. We can love differently because we love out of what's been done and not out of what can be done for us. Does that make sense? We love out of what's been done, not of what can be done. God has moved towards us, met us where we are, loved us before we ever loved him. And so we can love others that way as well. And that means our attitude towards others matters. We see here that it's called the love you have for God's people. And so as a community, as a church, we're called to love people on the inside. We're called to be a community of love that believes the best, that sees the best, that celebrates the best in others. We're called to be a community that supports and cares for and walks with and lifts up. As a church, we are a family with all the good and the bad that comes with that. Do you think about that that way? When you come here, do you think of this as a family reunion? Because that's what it is every week. It's a family reunion and we are invited to bring everyone with us that we want to. Bring them along. In my family, I couldn't bring, a, when our, my extended family would get together, I couldn't bring anybody else. I mean, this is just us, right? My wife and I had to be engaged before I could bring her along. Which is fair, because grandpa gave us grandpa money and that's a precious resource. But here we have a family reunion where it's like, bring everybody, bring everyone you know, bring everyone you've ever met, bring everyone. Bring everyone. Because we're called to have a love for outsiders as well. Now, love doesn't mean agreement, and I think we get stuck on that. Love doesn't mean agreement. Nowhere in the Bible will you see love the other person as long as you and that align on seven or eight really key things. We see the opposite. Love those you disagree with. Love your enemy. Carlos and I are good friends, despite the fact that he has absolutely terrible taste in sports teams. I mean, just tragically bad. I disagree with all of his team choices, but I still love that guy. We don't have to agree about everything. Being a Jesus follower means loving the people he loved. I saw one writer this week as I was studying say this way, love is the fruit of faith and the proof of its genuineness. Because when we believe in Jesus, that changes our hearts and changes the way that we love. When we understand how we have been loved, it can't help but change the way we love others. And not just individually, but for us as a church. How do we have a heart for those who are here and look to care for and support and walk with? But how do we have a heart for those who are not here yet? Because when we love someone else, we are willing to, to put our rights aside. When we love someone else, we're willing to care about their needs first. What does that look like for us if we did that as a church? If we loved differently. The last thing we see here is, is we're called to be a community that lives differently. We believe differently, and so we love differently. And when we love differently, we live differently. Paul points out, in verse 6, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. What's he saying? You guys are different. You're different. You're bearing fruit. There is external evidence of this internal transformation. You're bearing fruit. How do you know a tree's healthy? Because it bears good fruit. He said, I see that in you. 
You're living differently. And some of the ways this, the early church lived was just radically different. Radically different. Cult of the emperor was a huge deal in these cities at this time. And you just, he was a, to be worshipped as a god. And frankly, you, you had a hard time being part of the business community if you didn't participate in this. So when people didn't do that, you, they, when Christians didn't do that, people noticed. But it's not just the stuff they didn't do. This was a highly stratified, very class-driven culture. And when Christians transcended that, and that's why Paul talks later on, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. He's saying, crossing these cultural class barriers, people noticed. People noticed. We're called to live differently. To live differently. So what does gospel fruit look like that Paul mentions here? What does living differently look like? Paul gives us a helpful tip here in verse 10. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. I just want to go back to that idea real quick, right? Just this little nugget. Listen to this one more time. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Well, at least it's not like a high bar, Paul. Okay, thanks. That's all. Anything else you want to throw in there? But that's what we're called to do. And remember, God doesn't call us to do anything that he doesn't enable and empower and equip us to do. And so what he's saying is that this life is possible, not on your own, but because of the first thing we talked about. When you believe in Jesus and understand you've been loved and allow God to work in our lives through the power of his spirit, he enables this kind of behavior. Living differently means living a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing him in every way. Living a life that honors what, what God has done for us, that understands the reality of Jesus' death on a cross and his resurrection. Living in light of what has been accomplished on our behalf. Because when someone does something that's selfless for you, you remember. If you owe me $5 and I forgive that debt, I'm like, I don't worry about it. You're never going to remember that. But if you owe me $100 million, now where did I get $100 million? Or why did I give it to you? And how did you spend it and lose it? I don't know. That's a story for another day. But if I forgive your debt of $100 million, you name your kids after me. Boy, girl, doesn't matter. They're all Josh in some way. I get Christmas cards, Thanksgiving cards. I get Arbor Day cards. Anything I need, you are there. Why? Because you are conscious of the debt that has been forgiven, the size of the debt, the weight of the debt. That's what God's calling us to, not to live a life of guilt or obligation, but to live a life that, of in, that is conscious of the reality of the, of the depth to which Jesus loves us. That's the question we need to be asking ourselves all the time. Am I living a life worthy of the Lord that pleases him in every way? The challenge here of the gospel is that it has to impact and affect the outward expression of life for us as a community of, of faith, as a church. We got to live out the reality of the gospel. We have to look different in the best ways than the world around us. We have to. Because when we believe in something, it changes the way we live. When we love someone else, it changes the way we act. Jesus knows us, knows who we are, knows what we need, and he knows the way home. It's trusting that God knows better for us than what we know for ourselves. Because living differently is going to call us to sacrifice, to lay down rights, to, to give up preferences. But we got to remember, we are not the experts on ourselves. We think we are, but we aren't. 
And if I ever need a reminder of that, I, I get one every time I drive by Taco Bell and think to myself, maybe it'll be different this time. It's not, spoiler alert. I'm reminded I truly do not know what is best for myself. So what is it like for us to live that out, to live differently? Well, like I said, we have to live differently. We have to look different in the best ways in the world around us. Folks, we have a choice. We can be the church or we can be a Christian social club that cares about our wants and needs and preferences first and foremost. We can be the first thing or we can be the second thing, but we can't be both. Who are we going to be? Who are we going to be? The church is not called to reflect the world around us. The church is called to reflect Jesus to the world around us. We got to be better. We got to be better because Jesus makes us better. And we want to reflect that differentness to the community around us. If we don't live differently and we look the exact same to an unbelieving world, it looks like Jesus doesn't really matter all that much. A friend of mine and I were talking a little while ago, and uh, she just had a crazy couple weeks at work, just a nuts couple weeks at work, overwhelming, brain, her brain's exploding, just it, so much was going on. And she was talking with a friend of hers and found out that they were going through a hard season of, of their own. And so my friend, being who she is, just dove right in. Invited them over, looked for ways to support them, and committed herself to finding people to come alongside them and support this other family. She didn't need another thing in her life. She had plenty. But she's so conscious of what Jesus has done for her and how he has changed her life, changed her forever. She's like, why wouldn't I do this for someone else? No, it's not convenience. God doesn't call us to a life of convenience. He calls us to a life of meaning, to a life of purpose. Living differently means seeking unity under Christ more than it means seeking our own personal rightness. That's things a little bit. It's like, whew. How do we look to love others and to meet them in the middle and live together to model what it looks like to work through hard things together? Because living differently means being Jesus-focused and others-oriented. It's difficult, folks. That's why it's called dying to self. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for me. But the reality is our life is best lived when we give it away, when we surrender our rights for the sake of others just as Jesus did for us, when we recognize that our preferences are preferences, are our preferences, that our desires are our desires, that our agendas are our agendas, and that everything, everything is less important than Jesus. Everything is less important than Jesus. Some of us struggle with that right now. There's a lot of things we want to say, hey, this is, this, is, this is like, no, okay, Jesus, I get that. But there's some other things that are really important. Specific beliefs or ideologies or things we hold on to. We're not saying Jesus isn't important. We're like, hey, if you want to know Jesus, this stuff is important too. And what Paul points us to is it's Jesus and Jesus alone. We want to be committed to that as a church. We want to stand on the gospel and the completed work of Jesus and Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected. Because that is the only thing that truly transforms. And before you send me an angry email, remember two things. One, this challenges me too. 
I'm challenged thinking about this, going like, man, what stuff am I holding on to? What expectations am I imposing on other people that are not right or fair or true or biblical? How am I obscuring the view of Jesus by the other things I'm doing? And the second thing you need to remember before you send me an angry email is that my name is Carlos Velez, and my email is cvelez at calvary-church.com. The point here is not that we can't care about stuff. All I do is care about stuff. I don't have a middle ground. It's either the greatest thing in human history or the single worst thing that's ever happened. The point is not to not care about stuff. The point is that everything we care about has to go through the filter of caring about Jesus first and what he cares about. That's what the church is. We do anything else. We're just a gathering of people who showed up at the same place at the same time and happened to look nice. We got to care about Jesus first and what he cares about. That's how we're the church. Jesus needs to be the red sock that gets thrown into the laundry with your load of whites. He's got to impact everything. What does it look like for us to put that into practice, to put our money where our mouth is on that? I heard an interview with Billy Joel this week. If you're under the age of 30 and you don't know who Billy Joel is, your parents love him. (laughs) They love him. He was saying uh, many years ago, they decided, you know what, they're not going to put the first two rows of tickets on sale at his concerts. He got tired of the people that would come up front that just seemed very entitled and were like expected things from, you know, they they weren't really fans. They were there because it was a thing. In fact, he did this impression and he's like, play me a song, piano man, entertain me. And my first thought when he said that was, do you have a lot of vampires at your shows? That's a weird voice you just did. But he said, we, don't, we stopped putting the first two rows on sale. And what they would do is the, they would wait until the show started, you know, people started coming in. They would go to the back of the, the venue. They would find, you know, people that was, were fans, give them the tickets for free and move them up front. Giving them access to something they could never have on their own, right? People usually sit in the back because they're like me, because all your money is going to feed children. He put his money where his mouth is. He didn't just say fans are important. He said, what can I do to show fans are important? What can I do to show that? I don't want to just believe that that's true. I want to show I care about them. I want to put that into action by what I do. That's what Jesus is calling us to do here. That's what Paul is pointing out here for us. Church is a different kind of community. Community that believes differently, that loves differently, that lives differently. All those things go together. They all work together. The manifestation of our belief is love, and the manifestation of love is how we live. You can't live differently without Jesus changing everything. And if you know Jesus, you can't help but live and love differently. Why don't you bow your heads with me as we close? What's God poking on your heart right now about? What do you need to believe differently? What have you allowed to to take a co-starring role in your life alongside of Jesus? Where do you need to love differently? Where do you need God to soften your heart towards someone or something in your life that you have become hard towards and bitter towards? Where do you need to live differently? Where is God challenging you to put what you say into practice and to live differently? To live in such a way as that when people see you, they see Jesus. Father God, this can feel like a helpless task. 
because those are difficult things. But we thank you, Lord, that through your Son and the power of your Spirit, Lord, you enable us to do the thing that you have called us to do. We are not just a group of people that hang out here. We are not just a building. We are parts of the body of Christ. We are parts of your church. Would you help us to live that out in ways that transform us and impact others? We don't want to be the same as we've been, Lord. We're in a unique season of life, and we want to be people that love you, that know you, that are focused on you. Lord, would you help us to dig out those things in our heart that we are holding on to that make that difficult so that we might cling to you more tightly? We thank you for your promise, Lord, the way that you work in us. We thank you, Lord, for your church, for what it's been, for what it will be, and that we get to be part of that journey. Would you help us, Lord, to be a different kind of community? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 